We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Okay, good morning. Um, my name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here. Merry Christmas. Um, and uh, let me say welcome. If you're, if you're visiting with us, welcome also to... Uh, to our kiddos, we have the privilege this morning of getting to worship um, as a entire church family with our kids included, and so um, it's not often that we get to do this, and I'm glad for, for our kids that they get the privilege this morning of watching mom and dad submit themselves under the preached word, and so that's no small thing. So be gracious with one another, um, be patient with one another, and I'm excited for us to, to dive in. So pray with me, and we'll jump into our text today. Gracious triune God, in this season of Advent, we confess that we are a needy people. We look to you for our provision, and with gratitude, we acknowledge that in Christ, you have provided for all that we could ever ask or hope. We also acknowledge this morning, Lord, that Christmas is experienced very differently by many of us. Some of us are blessed to have been raised with our yearly calendar built around the gospel, and we cannot but look heavenward with gratitude and thanksgiving during the month of December. And some of us, however, have memories of heartache surrounding this season. For some, Lord, this season pronounces the heartache of absence or loss or abandonment of family. And in the midst of these joys and sorrows occasioned by this season, Lord, we collectively look to you and your word by faith. Feed us with the truth we need. Protect us from the despair that threatens to crush us in the face of disbelief. And protect us from the idolatry of sentiment. Lord, save those in our family who are still dead in their trespasses. All this is a work beyond the abilities of a mere man. And so please, Holy Spirit, water the hearts of those who hear your word so that seeds sown in weakness may be raised in power. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shown. It's hard for me to think of a better description of Christmas than these words from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 9. In this series, we are considering the Christmas story within the context of the overarching story that God is telling with human history. And so we began a couple of weeks ago at the beginning of this story, which is a story all about the triune God who is infinitely happy in himself, and sharing his happiness by creating, redeeming, and glorifying a people for himself. So we saw two weeks ago how this story began with Pastor Adam's sermon, when the Son of God spoke the universe into existence. And he handed the baton off to Pastor Ronnie, who ran his leg of this relay a sermon series last week when he preached a sermon on the fall of mankind into disobedience. And so leaving us with a sense of longing for deliverance, true to the spirit of Advent, he has passed the baton off to me. And this morning we're going to be 
thinking about the coming of the Son of God in the Incarnation, when the Son of God became man. And we're going to be walking through this passage of Galatians 4 together and four distinct movements. So let's begin with the beginning of verse 4 together. Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come. So we need to ask what was happening up until the fullness of time had come. What kind of state was the world in? And this state was simply the effects of what Pastor Ronnie talked about last week. What happened before the fullness of time had come? Sin was ravaging this earth. Sin and death were reigning on earth as oppressive tyrants. That's where Adam's sin left us. And we see the effects of sin still today because the story isn't over yet. There is still enmity in just about every conceivable area in this world. There is lack of peace between man and God and lack of peace between man and the rest of creation and lack of peace between man and man. And yet we saw at the end of Pastor Ronnie's sermon that God didn't leave us in such a helpless situation. Right after Adam and Eve's initial disobedience, God made a declaration, a promise. He said this to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This single offspring would crush the head of the serpent and bring reconciliation between man and God once more. And all throughout the whole Old Testament, we see this promise sustained. It's passed down from one generation to another. So we see this promise is passed down from the woman, broadly speaking, to Abraham specifically. And from Abraham to his son Isaac. And from his son Isaac, uh, from Isaac to his son Jacob. And from Jacob to his son Judah. And from Judah, it would come from the, the family line of David. And so the story of the Old Testament is telling us that this snake-crushing seed would come from the family of David. However, surrounding, surrounding this brightly shining silver line that runs through the Old Testament, the story of the Old Testament as a whole is rather bleak. All throughout the first two-thirds of our Bibles, we see this God choosing a people for himself. And he gives them promise after promise. And he instructs them in the way they should go, only to be met with failure and rebellion and disobedience. And we see this play out over and over again. The people rebel against God. They're punished by God. They repent, and then God restores them. And then they repeat. And this process just repeats over and over again. And we're constantly asking the question, will they finally repent and be faithful? We're constantly asking, at this point in the story, will they finally repent? Will 40 years in the wilderness finally sanctify them? Will punishment from the Philistines finally bring about lasting repentance? Will 150 years in exile to Babylon finally teach them a lesson they can retain? And the answer at the end of the Old Testament is a clear and definite no. The people of Israel cannot be obedient. And so that's how the first act of Scripture's drama comes to a close. It comes to a close with the curtains falling on a hopeless scene. 
And something we forget often is that those curtains stayed there for 400 years. That's the time lapse between the last events of the Old Testament and the first events of the New. 400 years, generation after generation, people are born, people live, people die with no sliver of evidence in their own lived experience that God is still for them. They have this promise of the son of David, the Messiah, that somehow God would interrupt their vicious feedback loop, that God would somehow circumcise their hearts so that they would love him, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And yet, every generation that passed was one more generation removed from the giving of that promise. One more generation of silence from God. You guys, that is where the Christmas story takes place. Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come. What kind of state was the world in before the fullness of time had come? Long lay the world in sin and error pining. So I hope we feel then just how thrilling is this thrill of hope when Christ at last comes. So let's read on together. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Here in these very brief two phrases, we see unfathomably deep truths hinted at. We see, first of all, Christ's divine nature hinted at here. The fact that God sent forth his son means that the son preexisted before his conception in the Virgin Mary. Right? It's very important we recognize that the Christmas story introduces no new development in the eternal bliss of our triune God. The persons of the Trinity are eternal and they're mutually defining. The Father is eternally the Father of His Son. He didn't become Father when the Son was incarnate. He is eternally the Father of His Son. The Son is eternally the Son of His Father. The Spirit is eternally the Spirit of His Father and Son. Never was there a time when God did not eternally exist as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you see, what happens in the incarnation is not a change in God's forever fullness. What happens in the incarnation is a change in creation. Because in the incarnation, the Son of God brings God to humanity in a way the world had never experienced before. And he does this by being born of a woman. So we see, second of all, that the Son of God really and truly took on a human nature. Everything we can say about humans, we can say about the Son of God, because the Son of God was human, right? His, his brain developed slowly and over time, beginning in the womb, because human brains developed slowly and over time, beginning in the womb. He went through puberty, because humans go through puberty. He experienced hunger and exhaustion and sadness and anger and sleep and needing to go to the bathroom really bad because humans experience all of these things. And he was without sin, which actually makes him the truest human. We tend to think that if we say Jesus was without sin, he's somehow less humans. But that's only because we assume sin has so pervasively infected this world that we assume that sin is basic to humanity. But far from being basic to humanity, sin actually has the effect of dehumanizing humans. 
It pulls us away from who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. The sin nature, in other words, the sin nature that you and I struggle and labor to strangle every day, that sin nature is a parasite in God's good design for humanity, which means that Christ was the truest man there ever was, in part because of his sinlessness. Now, for 2,000 years, the church has stubbornly resolved to hold on to both of these truths together as non-negotiable necessities for salvation, that Christ is truly divine and truly man, that he has two natures, divine and human. They're non-negotiables. In fact, Christians in the first century, fifth century described this as Christ's two natures being indivisible and unconfused, which means they're not mixing together. It's not like we have this you know, superhuman, hybrid, God-man sort of creature, and yet they're not separated. We don't have two distinct Christs, right? There's one man one, or one person with two natures, man and divine, brought together in what theologians call the hypostatic union. Now, what does this mean for us? What does this actually mean practically? Well, John Calvin elaborates on what this means when he says, here is something marvelous, and we should believe him when he says this is marvelous. So listen, here is something marvelous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth and to hang upon the cross. Yet he continuously filled the world even as he had done from the beginning. This simply means that the same Jesus Pastor Adam preached about two weeks ago, the Jesus who spoke the universe into existence, the one in whom all things hold together, that Jesus is the same Jesus that entered into his creation as an infant. He didn't stop holding the world together because he didn't stop being God. And that's what God does. And yet he, in his human nature was fed by and sustained by and pierced by and killed by that same world that he was holding together in his divine nature. Okay, so Sam, now your hair's splitting. You're getting all out of control. We are now talking about irrelevant truths. Why do I spend so much time explaining Christ's two natures? Simply this. If Christ is not truly divine and truly man... The Christmas story is absolutely hopeless. It doesn't mean anything for us. Now let me explain by calling your attention to our third movement through this text. Paul says that Christ was born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. What's he getting at here? Well, elsewhere in Galatians, Paul tells us that God gave us the law to be our tutor, to be our teacher to instruct us who we are and who God is. So, so what do we learn from this school of the law? What does, our, what does our school teacher, the law, teach us about ourselves? Well, she teaches us how wretched we are apart from Christ. You see, the law of God draws a line in the sand, and our sin nature compels us to cross that line. There's nothing unrighteous or unholy about God's law. God's commands 
which are summed up as love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. God's commands are perfect, but placed up against the sons and daughters of Adam, you and me, that law has a damning ministry. It condemns us. It shows us how guilty we are. It's like a spotlight that shines on our imperfections and blemishes. So the presence of the law has this condemning ministry. It says to the whole world, you are guilty before God. You are pining in sin and error. And so the Christmas story is a triune rescue mission wherein the Father sends the Son by the Spirit to save those who are condemned by the law. He's born under the law, in other words, because that's where we are. He's born under the law because he's got to come and get us from where we are. We are pressed down under the weight of the law and he's got to come and get us from where we are. And this is why the incarnation event didn't happen a day before the crucifixion. With him coming, the word becoming flesh as a fully grown man and dying. Such a work is not capable of redeeming those under the law. He comes as a fertilized egg because all eggs, all human eggs are fertilized under the law. He, come, he starts from the beginning because we have to start from the beginning. He's subject to obedience from conception because we are subject to obedience from conception. And an obedience that starts at any point past that is meaningless for us. So you see, Christ redeems those who are under the law by obeying the law they are under. He comes, he comes, and he comes underneath it where we are, and he lifts it from being on top of us. And he does this in two ways. He does this negatively by suffering the penalty of breaking the law for those he redeems. The suffering culminates with his death on the cross. This is what he's doing when he's dying on the cross. He's redeeming those who are under the law, in other words, by paying the wages of their law breaking. So here's the law. We break that law. We cross that line. We accumulate a debt. And the, the wages for that sin, for that law breaking is death. And he's got to pay those wages for us. But second of all, not only does he pay the wages for our, for our law breaking... He also positively achieves a righteousness of law-keeping. He positively obeys the law for us. In other words, the redemption that Christ gives us is a full redemption. He redeems us by paying for our guilt and by giving us his obedience. The incarnation event is inseparably tied to the crucifixion and the resurrection. In other words, we cannot separate... Christmas from Good Friday or Easter. We have not talked about Christmas until we've talked about Good Friday and Easter. The work of Good Friday, Jesus' death on the cross, began at Christmas with his incarnation. And it was completed on Easter, that first Easter with the resurrection. And we might add, it will be consummated at the return of Christ. Come back next week for that. So why is it important for us to emphasize Christ's two natures? Simply this, the obedience that we just described is impossible without the God-man. Only the God-man could restore fellowship between God and man. 
You see, man is so wicked that he must be punished by God. And animal sacrifices won't do. No, in order for us to be made right with God, we need for a human death to account for our human guilt because we accumulate the guilt as humans. And we need a human obedience to account for a human righteousness. We as humans need to succeed as humans because we as humans in Adam failed as humans in Adam. So if we have a second Adam to save us, he's got to be a human. This is why Christ had to be man. But the problem is no one born under Adam is capable of rendering such an obedience. The only blood that's sufficient to atone for our sins is a perfect blood. And only God is perfect, right? So that's the dilemma we are, we're in. We need a human perfection and only God is perfect. So we have the God-man. The incarnation is the God-man. In other words, we have a Christ who is able to achieve salvation for humans because he's God. He's a savior. He's able to be our savior because he's God. But that obedience he, he, he achieves for us is capable of being rendered to humans because he's human. So we have the God man. He lives for us. He dies for us and he rises for us. And so what does all of this work accomplish for us? Where, where, where is the rub? Well, let's finish our passage together. Paul says that the Son of God was born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is what it means to experience the joy that has come into the world. It is the joy of entering into God's family. Brothers and sisters, before we were brothers and sisters, we were orphans, alienated from God and from one another. And the story of the gospel is that while we roamed the streets fatherless, the Father sent His Son by His Spirit to rescue us, to bring us into His family and bestow upon us sonship. This is why in that beautiful Trinitarian-shaped prayer, this God sends the Spirit of, of uh, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, "Abba, Father." It means that God gives us the Son's script. We get to call God Father because we have the Spirit of God's Son in our hearts, so we get to say what God the Son says. We get to call God Dad, and this is the only way we could have ever made it into God's family. By the way, was for God to come and get us. Orphans don't get adopted by walking into the home of a stranger and saying, I live here now. That's not how adoption works. They don't come in by saying, I live here now. I'm taking your last name as my own. I now inherit your, will, your wealth. You need to feed me and clothe me and educate me and pay for my school. That's not how adoption works. That kind of access is granted. When you adopt a child, you are saying, although you were a complete stranger to me. 
laying claim to absolutely nothing of mine, I am now bestowing upon you my name. You have my last name now, which means I will work to feed you and clothe you and educate you. You are invited to help yourself to our refrigerator because it's now your refrigerator. You're invited to interrupt me when I'm in my office. You're invited to wake me up when you've had a bad dream. You are going to have presents under the Christmas tree and a stocking over the fireplace with your name on them. That's what the Christmas story accomplishes for us. So in light of that, I have three pastoral charges for us in light of all that we've considered this morning. The first is to any non-Christian who happens to be here present with us. You are charged this morning to be at peace. What do I mean? Well, the announcement that the angels gave to the shepherds watching their flock by night on that first Christmas evening was that God brought joy to the world. That peace has come to the world. Joy has objectively come to the world. Joy and wholeness and restoration has come to this earth in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you are genuinely invited to get in on that peace, which should be attractive because I'm sure, non-Christian, that like the rest of this tired and hurting world, you are sick of entropy and conflict. And you need to know that all the violence that ravages our world came from somewhere. It stems from the animosity between man and God. So while earthly violence and animosity is exhausting and needs to be dealt with, what you need first and foremost is reconciliation and peace with God. And that kind of peace is truly offered to you now. But it's offered to you in one place and one place only. And that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Listen, God will agree to no other terms of peace because no other terms of peace are sufficient. No other terms of peace are sufficient. You can come to Christ and surrender to him entirely, letting him live for you and die for you and be raised for you. You can come to him with empty hands, the empty hands of a beggar to receive and have peace with God that way, or you can insist on coming to God on your own terms and thereby remain in a state of darkness and condemnation. So we are in, inviting you, in other words, this morning, to come to Christ and experience the joy that has come to this world. Come to Christ and be at peace. Charge number two, this is for the Christians. You are charged this morning to be grateful. How tragic it is that this season in which we meditate on the incarnation actually occasions envy and discontentment. God forbid we ever adorn this season with selfish, selfish expectations or sidelong glances at others for having a more enjoyable Christmas season or insisting that all of our sentiments be pampered. This is the kind of idolatry that says, we're going to make great Christmas, Christmas memories if it kills us. Right? Greater Christmas memories than those Joneses are so help me. That kind of sentimentalism is selfish, and it's in part behind why at some homes everyone seems to fight during Christmas. Have you, have you experienced this? Everyone fighting during Christmas? That happens because everyone feels entitled to have their expectations and their sentiments pampered. 
which makes it very easy to get offended. People who are self-entitled are easy to offend. But grateful people are hard to offend. It's hard to be grateful, or it's hard to be offended when you're just grateful to be here, right? And when we think about that, what more could we hope to receive than what we've been given by our God and Savior, Jesus Christ? We have every reason for gratitude this Christmas season and every other. Guys, he has met us in our darkness and has invaded our darkness with his light. He has met us in our death and decay and has given us his life. He came and welcomed us when we were wandering the streets as fatherless orphans, and he brought us into his family. In him we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In him the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places, and we have a beautiful inheritance. In him we are brought into the fullness of joy, where there is peace and pleasures forevermore. In him, we are infinite, we have infinitely more than we could ever hope for or dream of. So Christian, this season, be grateful. Third and finally, Christian, you are charged this morning to be eager. So as I finish my leg of this relay race and pass the baton to Pastor Josh for next week's sermon, let let me remind you that the Christmas story isn't yet complete and its final and consummate form. Because we sit here in this time between times. We're sandwiched between two advents where we look backward with gratitude upon the arrival of Christ and we look forward with great anticipation for His return. You guys, things are not how they are. Things right now are not how they will be forever. There will come a time when sin and temptation to sin and all of the horrid effects of the fall will cease and will be with our beloved forever. And so we look with, with anticipation toward that time and, and this is what's actually signified and promised and sealed for us and to us in this act of communion. As we take this bread and this cup together, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, says Paul, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we we take this bread, brothers and sisters, we are testifying that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that he brought us grace upon grace by giving us his life, by giving us his body. And when we take this cup, we testify that he was crushed for our iniquities and pierced for our transgressions. And we testify that this this little meal is a meager placeholder. It's a preview of coming attractions because as we take this meal together and we're fellowshipping with Christ and one another, we should be stirring up our affections and our anticipation for the return of Christ. We should be stirring up our anticipation for that great wedding feast when our communion with, with Christ will be by sight. And so non-Christians, this is the future we're inviting you to get in on as we take this meal in front of you. Let, let our enjoyment of this little meal be an invitation for you to come to Christ. But please don't take this meal until you have, until you have come to Christ, until you've trusted by faith alone in Christ alone for your salvation, this meal cannot be for you the gospel emblem 
that it is for us. So until then, let it be a visual symbol for you. Let it, let it beckon you. Let it say to you, won't you come to Christ? Won't you, won't you come to him? He freely offers himself to you. Once you get in on this future, come to him by faith. I'm gonna pray and then ask for the believers in this room to come down together. You're gonna come down to my left, take from the bread and dip it in the cup, and then you'll return to your seat to my right. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come now to your table, looking to you by faith to commune with us by your grace, we pray that you would feed us, feed us with spiritual nourishment. Let your word preached this morning seep into our hearts. Let us be warmed by your kindness as we fellowship with one another at the table. Let this meal be used to build us up and convict us and strengthen us and establish us. Lord, use these words also in the public action of this meal to draw more people to yourself. We pray that those who are sitting in darkness would see the light of the world, that Christ would shine on their hearts and that they would by faith enter into the joy that has come to this world. Father, we ask these things in the name of your Son, by your Spirit. Amen. I love you, Emmaus. Come and take it. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.